Well, salespeople are good salespeople. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay? So they're hard as heck to hire. And one of the things I started to realize is how long it took me to ramp up another revenue producer. Like, how do you learn all this information in a short period of time? So about three years ago, I invested money in a... Again, these are really, I think, good points for anyone who's listening and trying to hire sales or trying to grow their company on the sales side. Any other suggestions here? I personally have benefited greatly from having an outside business coach. This is a decision that I made about My name is Gail Davis. I am 61 years old. I am located in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I founded and run a company called GDA Speakers. We are a full service speakers bureau and we book speakers for large corporate events, incentive meetings, association meetings, organizations, fundraisers, anyone who is bringing in outside talent to the platform. Are you a speaker yourself? I do a little bit. I mean, I did win the 4-H speech contest in fourth grade, but I don't bill myself as a keynote speaker, but I'm always happy to get in front of a room if I have something that I can share that they're interested in. Or an awesome podcast like this, right? That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. So how long have you been in business? And can you tell us a little bit about the size of your company? Sure. I have been in business 20 years. I started my business in 1999 after doing a 20-year corporate stint with a company called EDS, Electronic Data Systems. It was founded by Ross Perot. I started with one speaker in 1999 with an office in my home. Today, I have an office in Dallas with 13 employees. And in our speaker database, we probably have over 4,000 speakers. We could talk more about how I had to triage that number because it became unmanageable, but the business has definitely grown. Uh, we're over 10 million in revenue and we just have a steady growth every year. And what's been the hardest part about growing your business? Developing myself as a leader, creating the right culture and finding the right employees that have longevity. Yeah, I think time and time again, it's like finding the right people to be in your company. Is, it seems like one of the hardest things, at least that I've come across. It is. Why do you think so? I think for me, I am fiscally conservative. I would be hesitant initially in the early years to, the math just doesn't work when you're getting started and you're trying to scale. I didn't have any outside funding, so I wasn't going out. I need the most talented person. I don't care how much they cost, I'm going to pay for them. I was more like, what can I get for this amount of money? And I think that is probably smart on the balance sheet. If I look back in the rearview mirror, how much time I spent training young college graduates. I was the queen of hiring people right out of college, teaching them everything they needed to know. And then they went and found their second job. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, no, that's understandable. And I think that's how a lot of entrepreneurs are at first. I mean, that's how I am still today. As far as trying to find the value, like I can't go out and hire someone for $100,000 a year to help me with marketing, right? No. I think everyone can understand that perspective. And looking back, you're like, oh, it would have been nicer. But then again, you would have learned once you have good people, now you know the value of them, right? Oh my gosh, appreciate. So one of my business coaches says that talent is someone that you hire and they leave the position better than when they found it. And I work around a lot of talent. It's just such a great feeling. And I appreciate it so much because I see the marked difference in some of the teams that I've had in the past that I was teaching everything to. Yeah, it's just like any business story that we even have on here. It's like some of the lows that you go through where maybe you're not making money for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. You're making money, then you lose a lot of money, then you make money again. It's like, okay, now I appreciate that it wasn't all easy. Right, exactly. So are you born and raised in Dallas? I am not. I am originally from Altus, Oklahoma, which is a Air Force town in the southwest corner of Oklahoma. My mother still lives there and I still consider it home, if you will, although I've been in Dallas since 1982. So where do you think we should start with your story here? I think probably the most interesting thing is how I went from a 20-year corporate career to becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it's 20 years in, I think maybe a lot of people would just be like, I guess you're in your younger 40s and just be like, hey, you know, it's too late. I missed the boat. But I mean, there's plenty of people listening right now who are probably right in that same situation where they want to start their own business, but they're scared. So I think 
Yeah, if you want to jump in there, I think maybe that's a good place to start. So I went to work for EDS right out of college. I wouldn't trade for that experience. It was an incredible culture. There's still a great bond between people who worked at EDS, even though the company doesn't exist. What's EDS real quick? Electronic Data Systems. It's a company that was founded by Ross Perot. And it was the original IT company, if you will, IT services. I had a number of just incredible travel experiences, project experiences, met a lot of interesting people. I and mean, it was a very, very fulfilling career. At the end of my career, I managed something called corporate incentive events. So that was our sales recognition program. EDS, it happened to be called Inner Circle. At some companies, it's called the Golden Circle, the Chairman's Club, the President's Club. It's any event that people in sales qualify for, and then they get a big incentive trip. And so I was managing that the last five, seven years of my time at EDS. And one year, at the close of an event, the chairman issued me a challenge. He said, I want you to find a speaker that is new and different someone that everyone would want to hear, but no one has heard, and someone who is global in their appeal. And EDS was very much the kind of environment where if someone issued you a challenge that seemed near impossible, you just rose to the occasion. So I was very much on a mission to find this next speaker. And unrelated, I was at the VHS store, so this was in 1994, I rented the movie Alive about the plane crash in the Andes Mountains. In this movie, Ethan Hawke, the actor, portrays the hero of the story who is Nando Parado. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but in a nutshell, it was a Uruguayan rugby team that was flying to Chile. The pilot made a navigational error. The plane crashed. They were stranded in the Andes for 72 days. The rescue was called off. Nando, who was portrayed by Ethan Hawke, and Roberta Canessa walked out of the Andes from 15,000 feet into Chile. It took them 10 days to trek out. And in the end, there were 16 survivors. I loved the movie. And at the end, I'm thinking, this is international. Wouldn't everybody love to hear what really happened on the mountain? To my knowledge, he's not speaking. So I went to various speakers bureaus, which is what my business is. I am a speakers bureau. And I said, can you help me find Nando Parado? They weren't able to help me. They advised me on why this might not have been a good idea. All valid points. They said, just because a movie's been made about someone doesn't make him a great speaker. Just because someone writes a book doesn't make him a great speaker. You run the risk when someone like Ethan Hawke portrays someone, you think that's what you're going to get, but then you might get something totally different. All valid points. But I had seen the real Nando Parado in a documentary, and I just was convicted that I was going to find him and he was going to speak at this event. It's a crazy story. I went through so many avenues because in 1994, Google did not exist. After going through the Uruguayan embassy in Washington, D.C., who wouldn't give me his number but pointed me in the right direction in Montevideo, Uruguay, and after several conversations where I spoke my broken Spanish, I eventually got Nando on the phone. And originally he told me, thank you so much for calling. I'm glad you like the story. I'm not interested in speaking. My mother died. My sister died. My five best friends, not interested. But I continued to pursue the idea. I continued to send him information. I finally convinced him. He spoke and it was off the charts. And so the chairman of the company, Les Alberthal, put his arm around me and said, you know what, kid, you should really retire. And to your point, I think when he said that, I was maybe 38, 39, but he planted an idea, I think. And I became friends with Nando and his wife. My family visited his family. At one point, the timing just seemed right. I left EDS with 20 years under my belt, and I started a company with one speaker, Nando Parado. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks, and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk, and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. Yeah, I thought you were going to nominate yourself there first when you're talking about all the accolades that you're looking for in your first speaker. <laughs>
That's pretty good persistence. I think I'd probably have given up way earlier, especially without Google, like you're saying. I couldn't yeah. even imagine trying to find that. I'd almost give up having even with Google helping me, right? Yeah. So yeah, why did you keep persisting on this? Honestly, I just had so much passion around the idea. And once I came that way, I started watching everything that I possibly could. I remember seeing a documentary and in that documentary, he just completely won me over. I knew he was the right fit. So I just stuck with the idea. It was a vision that I had and I just knew there were going to be obstacles, but I felt convinced I could get him there. All right. So after you finally booked this guy, you say, hey, you're going to go ahead and quote unquote retire and then start your own company. I didn't quit immediately. So that was in 1995. Instead, what I did is I approached DDS if I could go part time. That really wasn't a culture that you could do anything halfway. So my idea was I was going to start the company in my spare time. But the idea just kind of was on hold. And then in 1999, the timing was right. And I decided to leave EDS. Well, you wanted to get out before Y2K? <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I tried. That's good. Yeah. No, you know, just a lot of things had happened in terms of different leadership. And, you know, today the company doesn't even exist. And I think one of the great things about when I did decide to leave is I have all the fond memories of EDS being the company that I remember it to be. We'll just leave it at that. But it just seemed like a good time to make the decision and go out and start the company. How about personally? Were you married and have kids? Well, that's interesting. You should bring that up because, yes, I was married and I did have two kids. I thought that there was a lot of stability to allow me to go explore this. And I can fast forward and tell you five years into having my company, I did go through a divorce. And that was really a pivotal point in my entrepreneurial journey because I realized this could no longer be a hobby. I either had to be really serious about being a business owner, being a good leader, scaling a business and making a profit, or I needed to hang up my track shoes and get a corporate job. That's when I really decided to be very, very serious. It makes sense at the time because you're like, okay, at least on the back end, I guess you had your husband's income coming in. Right. But I was just wondering also too, is like, what did the kids think as far as like what age level they were at? And I didn't know, like you were saying, if it was kind of part-time and you're like, hey, I can be kind of stay-at-home mom and kind of grow this on the side or yeah, just walk us through that. So the first year my office was in my home and I didn't work crazy hours. I mean, it was just kind of an idea with one speaker, but things started to get traction and I realized, you know, I actually need an office. So I picked an office one mile from my home, one mile from the high school and one mile from the middle school. That was a season in my life where I was able to really juggle being present at all the sporting events and the assemblies and being on the PTA and all of those things. And I think it was great for my kids because they always had part-time jobs working for me. When they got their driver's license, they stopped by and, you know, ran to FedEx for me, carried out the trash, copied VHS tapes. I mean, whatever it was that we were doing back then. So they really grew up in the business, if you will. And then after they both graduated from college and I was no longer married and I was living in the suburbs, they're like, mom, you should move to Dallas. You should move in a high rise. And we rebranded the company at that time because previously it was Gail Davis and Associates. And we moved to Dallas. We rebranded GDA Speakers, really started investing in the right employees, really tried to become competitive in terms of benefits, 401k matching, profit sharing. So there's been several different iterations along the way. But for me, that just re-energizes because it's almost like a new venture when you take on something like that and take it to the next level. And how many years was that in when you started making the move, I guess, to downtown Dallas and Highbrows? I've been here, I think, eight years. So that uh, 20 years, about 12 years. The company was about 12 years old. Okay. Well, yeah. And I kind of agree with you. I mean, I could see like mentally, just even when you went from your house to an office that was a mile away, even though it's the same company, you just get a different vibe. You know, it's just everything kind of seems like renewed. And I could see that when you're moving to Dallas or whenever you got divorced and realizing like, hey, I got to actually make real money from this or else I'm going to be in trouble. So all those steps, like I think anyone in a business every year, there's something like that that you don't think is going to happen and then revitalizes you or you might go through a downturn that makes you appreciate things later on, like employees, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we talk about your one at least a little bit more, if you don't mind, as far as like what you thought you were going to do, any mishaps you had when you were working from home and any suggestions on anyone else starting a business from home? I remember the lines blur a lot. And here I was trying to be this present mom, but 
the office is never really closed. I remember someone telling me, you have to literally walk out of your home office and you have to turn the knob and you have to shut the door because the tendency is that it blurs so much that you're actually working more when you actually had to get in your car and go to work. You know, I remember many days that I got my kids out the door and I would sit down and I would start working and they would come home from school at 3.30 and I had never gotten dressed or made myself presentable just because I got sucked in because I enjoy what I do. I know now there are so many employees, even corporate employees that work from their home and I'm sure everyone has lots of tips on how to prevent that from happening, but that was one of the things. And then I think moving to the office and having monthly lease payments and various expenses, it just took it to another level. I mean, I just personally took myself a little bit more seriously. That totally makes sense unless you haven't worked from home, if someone hasn't. But I think more of the workforce, I used to talk about this more in earlier episodes of this podcast of like the difficulties of working from home. I mean, I work from home, but then even if you have your own office, like I do in my own house, it's just like still, I'll still blur the lines unless I have to force myself to get out. Right. I think a lot of people are going to experience this later on as more of the home office, like people are going to work from home more and more. So I think they're going to have issues like this. So I think just being mindful, like you said, of taking it to another level when you can move out of the home or do something else to not lower those expenses. But at least you were kind of positive about making sure your overhead wasn't too much because I think that's what happens sometimes too when people get too excited when they're starting their first company. Right. Do you want to talk about any plateaus or anything else along the way as far as this journey? I don't know if we should start talk about right when you started in this new office or where you want to go from here. 9-11 stands out. So I had moved over to the office. I had maybe three employees at the time. I actually had gone to work at maybe eight that day. So I'm over there working away. I don't think back then, you know, you broadcast the news. The way today, you know, if something major happens, you just sort of know it because you're all integrated with social media and things. But I remember an employee walking in and telling me what happened. And that was a very, very interesting time because in our industry, our contracts have something on the back called force majeure, which in a case of an act of terrorism or a riot or an unrest and the speaker can't get to the event, that's force majeure. That day, I actually had someone that was supposed to give a speech in St. Louis. And I remember that whole day talking with the client and talking, well, it was Nando. I mean, I've just told you the Nando story. So he was in St. Louis. We went down the path of do we cancel, which seemed like the knee-jerk, obvious reaction. But then his perspective was like, why? It was for an organization called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. He goes, why would you want the terrorists to win? Why wouldn't we want to come together, hear the story, and be there for each other? So that is what the organization decided to do. And they still talk about what an incredibly memorable evening that is. They've even had him back since then because people just really remember that experience. But then we needed to get him to his next engagement, which was in Canada. And of course, all the planes were grounded. So he rented a car, he drove to Dallas. Then the domestic flights opened up, but the international flights were still grounded. So I remember calling a friend in Seattle and saying, if I fly Nando to Seattle, will you pick him up and drive him to Banff? So we got him there. But from more bigger picture, not anecdotal, but big picture, when does force majeure end? Of course, everyone's like, oh, we understand you can't have your meeting on 9-11. We'll refund your money. Oh, we understand you can't have your meeting on 9-12. We'll refund your money. But as an industry, what's the day that you say, sorry that happened, but you were obligated to this and you either have the event or you don't have the event, but you still owe the money. Fortunately for me, I was so small at that time. I have a handful of events to deal with, but I know I had industry colleagues who at that time had been in business for well over 40 years that probably had 40 to 50 dates a day and they had to navigate through that. And I don't think there's been a single thing like that since. I mean, there's been some economic downturns, but even in economic downturns in our industry, most people still have the meeting and most people still have the speaker. They might just modify the budget. So maybe if they traditionally had spent $40,000 on a speaker, maybe during an economic downturn, they would be interested in exploring someone that was more like twenty or 25000 Who were the people kind of having issues in? Say if you were a bigger company at that point in time, would you be the one getting screwed and like having a lawsuit against you for not having the speaker there? Or was it vice versa? What I'm trying to understand is like who was getting hurt the most out of your, like your friends and then the actual people who were booking them? I think it was everybody. And that's one thing that's so cool about this industry is it's very collegial, even 
with our partners who are hiring the speaker, but they were on the line too because they had hotel contracts. Right. Okay. I didn't even think about that. So they have those contracts. Yeah. So let's just say you're ABC company and you have a contract with the local Hilton. You can't cancel the time period, you know, and yet your employees are from all over the world, possibly, or all over the states. And if the planes are grounded, they can't get there. And then don't you remember how afraid everyone was to take that first flight after 9-11? I mean, that was a topic of conversation. Have you flown since 9-11? No, I haven't. Are you ready to fly? Mm, I don't know. I think I'm going to wait. So even if the planes now were not grounded, people were just kind of hesitant to get back into that routine. So everybody was sensitive and trying to navigate it. And one thing I learned when I was on the other side in corporate America, don't use the C word, which is cancellation. Use the R word, which is reschedule. That's how I tried to navigate through it. I was like, okay, well, obviously you can't have your meeting on September 20th, but can we just find a new date and reschedule. So everybody worked together, but it's just the biggest thing that I can think of in the 20 years I've been on business to navigate. Yeah, I've never even heard this brought up ever, but it makes sense now that you're saying it. It's like, especially because all these people have to deal with flights and then if right. the venues or whatever company was booking them and then the speaker's not getting there, so. And you know, when you talk about threats, like what's the biggest threat? I mean, I don't dwell on it, but I know now that I'm bigger, I have more people on my staff, more people on payroll, more speaking engagements, an event like that would be really challenging. It's definitely going to happen. I mean, every 20 or 30 years, something's going to happen, but hopefully it's just not to that extreme or, you know, hopefully nothing happens. But eventually if a volcano or earthquake or whatever, you get something out of your power that right. you were small enough to understand like how that could actually hurt you. Right. It's funny, like when I got into commercial real estate, I got in like the downturn. So I always saw when it was like at its worst. So no matter what, I'd have always appreciated when I went higher. So getting in at that point, make sure that you're prepared for that versus again, if everything was great from the beginning, then it'd be an issue. Right. So after, I guess, the 9-11 situation, what other stories do we want to hit on? There are two decisions that I made that really helped me re-energize and take things to the next level. The first was joining my industry association, which is called IASB, the International Association of Speakers Bureaus. Just a terrific organization that's very collegial in nature. And you go and it's mainly people who run, own, operate speakers bureaus. And when I first heard about it, I thought, well, how's this going to go down? I mean, aren't we all competitors? But it's the nicest, pleasant, strangest group of people you can imagine. It's so collegial. People are like, oh, you're new here. Let me tell you how to get started. Oh, you need a contract here. Let me show you my boilerplate. And that decision to join that, get involved, be convention chair, get on the board, eventually be president, making all those contacts, that's been instrumental in helping me be successful here in Dallas and as I do events really all over the globe. But I'd like to give a shout out to that industry association because I think that was has really been beneficial. Oh, well, I think that's important because again, anyone who's in any industry listening right now, right, they might be hesitant to join an industry association. Is it worth it? You know, why would I want to join and see my competitors if I'm going against them? So could you give more detail on why anyone who's in a certain industry, why they should actually be joining that and not be, you know, worried about why they shouldn't be? Well, you know, I run into things all the time that I'm like scratching my head going, I don't really know what the right answer is. You know, what commission should I be paying my salespeople? I think this is right, is it? I actually, because of the long standing relationships that I have, when I'm struggling, not even struggling, but just curious, you know, what is everybody else doing? It's so easy to pick up the phone. And of course, we don't share information that really is our competitive advantage. But I find my colleagues are so helpful in saying, well, you know, it's certainly easier to increase a commission than it is to lower one. I remember one saying that. And then I remember one telling me, hey, it's a closed equation. Some people pay a base plus a commission. It's going to be lower if you're getting the base. Some people are commission only. It's going to be higher if you're not getting the base. But at the end of the day, if you run all the numbers, you know, it's kind of a closed equation. They're going to get the money one way or the other, and it's going to be approximately this. So that's just one example. Or maybe 
you are trying to find a speaker. A lot has changed over the years now with Google and all the search engines. But back in the day, if you were trying to find someone or maybe one of your clients wanted to book someone and you had not worked with them, I can pick up the phone and I can call a colleague and go, hey, have you ever booked so-and-so? And they say yes. And I say, what can you tell me? Oh, they're great. They're easy. They do what they say they're going to do. It'll be a fantastic experience. Or they might say, at the end, it'll be fantastic, but be prepared. They're very last minute. They don't get you the information on time. It's like pulling teeth to figure out their travel plans. Or they might give you a buyer beware, don't do it. This is what went wrong. So just the insight and being able to leverage their experience. So through these relationships, when I was a company that was only two years old or three years old or four years old, I could tap into so much more wisdom, which then made me more credible. I mean, I certainly knew it from the client side, but I was new to the bureau side. So that's where my association really helped me. Well, yeah, that's an important point. And so the association helped you. What else in those early years? Another decision I made was to join a group called EO, the Entrepreneur Organization. It's similar to a group that actually happens to be one of my clients, YPO, the Young President's Organization. The difference is, other than some revenue hurdles, you have to be making a lot more money to be in YPO, but YPO can be a combination of what you might call hired guns or someone that inherited a family business or someone that started a business. It's kind of all of those scenarios. But EO is strictly people who founded a company, who had an idea and turned it into a business. So that has been just amazing for me to be around other like-minded entrepreneurs. Within an EO chapter, there are these smaller groups called forums. And you can almost think of the forum as your own personal board of directors. You meet monthly. You have an opportunity to present, experience, share, get feedback, take your challenges there, whether they're personal or business. And I think I've been in EO now, it's about 2007, I think. So it's been well over 10 years, 12. It's really been very, very helpful for me. It's something that I continue to do every year. I think, am I getting too old to be in EO? And then I'm like, nah. <laughs> I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. But, <laughs> I'm but, feeling you. Yeah. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? That's funny that you bring that up because I'm actually doing a similar thing with podcasts now where I'm trying to put together mastermind groups for people who listen. Yes. You know, so just same concept. It's like that idea of where, I mean, people are listening passively right now, right? To your story and trying to learn, but, you know, being able to vent to other business owners, basically the same thing you're doing with your industry associations. Right. But asking other business owners like, hey, you know, do you think I'm doing this right? Or should I be doing something else differently? Because again, it's just having some camaraderie or someone you can talk to about growing your business versus, I don't know if you had any other entrepreneur friends when you started your own business, like that you could talk to about this type of stuff. Yeah. It's really interesting because in the industry association, I found found people who were already established and probably most of them, some of them were the owners who had been entrepreneurs, but it was 20 years ago. You know, they really were established. They knew what they were doing. And I don't know that I had that many friends that were starting companies, but boy, you go to an EO meeting and you're just exhausted when you leave because there's so much energy in the room and everybody has an idea and everybody's trying to make it. It's a cool energy and I quite enjoy it. 
Yeah, I think it's just maybe picking one or two groups, maybe three. You know, I think Max, I think some people start straining themselves when they get involved in too many. But having those different types where, like you said, the entrepreneurs organization where you had the younger people who are still started their own company learning from them. But then with your industry association, maybe you had other people who were 20 years down the line. So you could even ask them the same question. You might get different feedback and you can weigh what works best for you. Exactly. From there, I guess, I don't know what's the best point if you want to just keep going chronologically of long, you know, what you've learned and any like downturns at this point. I think we might be approaching the part where you've got a divorce around this time too, right? I did join EO right after. Okay. I got divorced. So ironically, you know, EO is education. It's the forum concept, but it's also social. I have been married for like 17 or 18 years. And so, you know, that was a whole new phase for me. Like, going to an event by myself. Sometimes I think the people at EO that reached out to me when I would walk in, they have no idea. I was really stepping out there doing that. I remember the first meeting I pulled up to ballet and I saw what I perceived as all the couples getting out. And I thought, what in the heck am I doing? I'm going home. But now I don't even want to take a guest to an EO meeting because there's just so many fun people there. And, you know, I just get so energized by it. But learning how to do things as a single person after so many years of doing them as a couple, you know, that was a personal opportunity to grow because it wasn't what I had expected. And that's why it's important to be part of these types of groups. Like, you know, try to balance your work, you know, your business while you're grinding at work all the time, but also have these other things in case something in your personal life changes. Because no matter what, I mean, it could be a death or maybe friendships end and, you know, you need another group that you can talk to. Because if you didn't have them at this point in time, I'm not sure if maybe things would be the exact same they are today. Exactly. I think you're right. Yeah. So I guess we're about five, six years into the business. I mean, what type of revenue are you doing or like take home as far as, because again, this was an inflection point where you said, Hey, if I'm going to be the sole provider of my own income, I either have to go get a real job or start making more money here. So this would have been around 2007. So I was about 2 million and it's just kind of steady growth. I went to 3 million in revenue in 2010 and then you start to scale, you know, in 2012, almost 5 million Then 2015, it was like 6.8. I don't know how far this report goes. I pulled an old report off the thing. We may be well over 10 now, but I know that was kind of a big mark in my planning. And then I had this idea of like 20 million in 2020. It's probably not going to happen. It was a little ambitious, but I'll tell you a really pivotal thing that I realized is there was so much information in my head And then I have another employee, Julie, who's been with me over 12 years. And there was so much information in her head. And one of the things I started to realize is how long it took me to ramp up another revenue producer. Like, how do you learn all this information in a short period of time? So about three years ago, I invested money in a custom software system. And I tried to get everything out of Julie's head and my head, all in what we call the back office. And... I think now we are truly positioned to scale because we've automated all of the processes. I have an employee, we were talking the other day and I said, you know, how long do you think it took for you to click? And she said, 60 days. And I remember when we used to say a year. So to go from a year to 60 days, that investment in the back office software, I think was pivotal. That's going to allow this scaling to become even more rapid. I guess that's about 17, 16 years in when you did that. Yeah. Because we're still at the five or six year market when we're talking about 2007-ish, right? Uh-huh. When you're doing 2 million in revenue, do you mind if we jump back to that? Sure, not at all. I mean, as far as, did you just have one employee there and just tell us about making that next hire and then how you've learned to do this over time? I can actually see this moment where I had a chart that I replaced every month on the bulletin board and it showed our average monthly closings in net. That was a big thing. I'm a journalism major and my CPA had to teach me so much about running a business. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, we just booked a speaker for, you know, $100,000. Can you believe it? And her question would be, well, how much money are you going to make? Right. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, 5,000. Right. Be like, do you understand how low that margin is? You know, <laughs> and I'd be like, what's a margin? You know, yeah. I mean, seriously, this is embarrassing to admit today, but I'm telling you, she had to sit me down and explain the difference between gross and net. She taught me the concept of cash is king. She taught me the concept of 
you have to have a minimum, Gail. Like you can't afford to book the speaker for the kindergarten graduation for $500. The time and energy and effort that you're spending on booking a $500 speaker where you're making $50, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, today we would never book anybody that we didn't make $2,500. And when we measure our results, we only talk about net. So I don't care how much gross revenue we do. That's not that impressive unless we meet our target on our net. Because I flatlined. I was like 2 million in 2006, 2007, 2.5 in 2008, back to 2 million in 2009. And I remember this day that this super smart former client had come to work for me and this chart was on the bulletin board and it basically showed, I'm pretty sure the number was 40,000 net a month. And she was flipping back to the previous years and she's like, this isn't growing. What's going on here? And I was like, well, I just can't do anymore. And the minute I said it, I was like, oh, I guess I need another salesperson, <laughs> you know, hello. So that's when Julie, who had worked for me for quite a while, that's when I convinced her to go into sales. Well, then the next thing you know, you know, we go from 2 million to 4 million because we have two salespeople. It's pretty simple. You have to have the revenue producers. And then we went through just periods of hiring the wrong people to be salespeople. Yeah. Tell us about that first person that you hired that was a wrong person or the most interesting wrong hire for a good story for our listeners. Well, salespeople are good salespeople. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So they're hard as heck to hire because they're likable, they're gregarious. Of course, they're going to love the job. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, I'm a salesperson. So I was interviewing people that are kind of like me and I like them. And because I'm a salesperson, I wasn't saying, hey, it's going to take you a year to figure this out. And hey, it takes you this long to find your client base. I mean, I wasn't pointing out anything negative and they certainly weren't pointing out anything negative. So we would have these interviews, it would be massive love fest because we were so much alike. And then they'd come on board and they'd bug the heck out of me because they weren't producing and I was paying them. And I would bug them because I didn't know how to give them direction or I hadn't explained it the right way. So I almost had to get out of my own way on hiring salespeople or on a lot of things, actually, but really on hiring salespeople. We developed a process. There's a great book by Jeff Smart, Hiring A Players, or you might have to look up the name of the book in your show notes, but it's all about having a process for hiring people and not deviating from that process. And I had the fortune of hearing Jeff speak and explain it. And I adopted that process. And I said, okay, you guys, we have to follow this process. I cannot be in charge of meeting someone, falling in love with them and hiring them. That's just not working. You know, we've had some really great people along the way. I did hire a lot of young women who could have been incredible long-term salespeople. Good for them. But unfortunately for the company, they would start having their families and then decide that, you know, they wanted to stay home to raise their children. So there's a lot of great people that I had that are home raising their kids. And I still stay in touch with a lot of them. And I'm like, isn't that child about graduating from high school now? <laughs> you know, when are you coming back? So that was a lesson that I had to learn to have more balanced sales teams. So you started hiring more guys so they want to get pregnant? <laughs> Actually, we've had a hard, we have one guy that has worked here for a while, but it tends to be all women. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I'm not sure why. Not necessarily in the industry. Like a lot of my colleagues are male, but what I did was I started having sales teams and I try to have like a millennial and like a baby boomer make up a team because I think they complement each other. The younger person knows technology so much better. The older person might have a little bit more wisdom and experience and know how to navigate large corporations. And then you kind of have, a little bit more insurance on your team if somebody does leave for whatever reason. You know, the sales team concept that I implemented two years ago has really, really, really proved to be so smart. So is that the concept like your teams are always an older person with a younger person? It didn't start out that way, but it has ended up that way and it's really working well. And I agree with that because my first role, like doing commercial real estate, when I was a broker, like there's an older guy who was in his mid forties, maybe upper forties. And I was a younger dude. And I think it worked very well. Like as far as he didn't know shit about technology, like he'd open up Outlook and have literally like 200 emails open. He's like, why is my computer crashing? I'm like, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like you can press X after all these things. And then I would know technology wise, how to look up stuff on the internet to try to find commercial real estate owners and stuff. And they're, you know, it's boggling their mind. I was the first guy who like, I bought my own second monitor and brought it in. And they're like, wait, you have two monitors? What the hell is that? I'm like, you guys are idiots for not buying a second monitor. It's only yeah. like 150 bucks. 
and he knew the industry very well where he could teach me terms and yes any industry kind of you know statements or acronyms right that was very helpful so for me personally that worked well too and it sounds like people ask me like who i've been talking to in the podcast as far as the listeners like how do i hire good salespeople? so i mean if you have any other suggestions on that i definitely agree with that kind of compliment definitely i think would work out well because also that older person mm -hmm. it's not looking at the younger person i think as a direct competitor versus if you had like two older people who are right. on the same team or two younger people on the same team if they're thinking long term there's like hey you know how much do i want to share with this person but i think it's more of like a father figure or mother figure that if they can teach you and you trying to help them as well and one of the things is i started to think about industries that were similar so recruiting is a big one you know i have a background as a corporate recruiter julie who's been with me for almost 13 years has a background as a corporate recruiter and if you think about it recruiting is nothing more than job openings candidates and matching them up and what we do is nothing more than i need a speaker and we've got the speakers and matching them up. You know, when I could start to say, hey, maybe someone that's been in recruiting would be really good at this. That was also really helpful. How does it translate? Well, I think that's good. You wanna talk more about that? One other thought was just, and then I figured out how important it is that someone be interested in learning, curious about current events, about books, about politics. You can't do this job if you're not interested in pop culture and what's going on in the world. You simply can't. So once I figured out, here's some industries that are similar, but this is the secret sauce. If they're interested in this, you know, then they're going to get very passionate about it. I'll put my two cents in here again. It's similar that I just hired another audio editor for the podcast. And this girl has no background in audio editing at all, but she's going to take out all the filler words and all that other stuff. That's kind of our step one process in the audio editing. But her background is bookkeeping. And I'm like, well, if you have to be precise on like debits and credits and everything, I'm like, right. once we teach her audio, I can teach her audio editing in like an hour or two. Like it's very simple once you pick up these things, because we kind of have a procedure or videos that I've made to help them with that. But I'm like, okay, even though she's a bookkeeper, like if she she has make sure everything's kind of perfect. She's going to do that on the audio as well. So I hired another person to do that. But not only that, it's kind of what you're saying too, is like for me, it brought in new energy, right? Because I've had the same people. We needed another person to help us. And she's like, I really want to learn this. So like you were saying, if they want to learn, it also brings new energy into your company. Yes, totally. Again, these are really, I think, good points for anyone who's listening and trying to hire sales or trying to grow their company on the sales side. Any other suggestions here? I personally have benefited greatly from having an outside business coach. This is a decision that I made about two and a half years ago because I was experiencing some turnover issues and I was very frustrated by that. And of course, my opinion was all the people I was hiring were screwed up. They just had to be. I mean, it's not your fault. It's not my fault, you know, <laughs> and that moment when you look yourself in the mirror and go, there's only one consistent factor here, Gail, and that's you. That's a sobering moment. I didn't like the turnover. It's exhausting. It's embarrassing. It's frustrating. It's expensive. So I decided, well, maybe I need to take a look at how I'm doing this. And I found a great business coach. And she lives in Austin, Texas. I live in Dallas. She does occasionally come here and do things with my team, but her coaching model is typically over the phone. That accountability with an outside person, we have a structure for how our calls go and getting to the core of my way of being and how I could be different and I could impact the culture. And culture is such a buzzword. You know, everybody talks about oh, the culture, but creating a culture is hard. And correcting a culture is even harder. I think I had ignored it for a long time, you know, stripped everything away, made a commitment to be the best person I could be, be the best leader I could be, be transparent, be clear. I used to be a very confusing leader because I would just say a lot of stuff that <laughs> was kind of vague, you know, and right. people would just shake their heads and act like they understood, but were frustrated, but nobody was saying they were frustrated. And when I worked at the business coach, she would say, now, could you explain that better? And I'd say something, she'd go, I still don't really understand what you're trying to say. And at first, I mean, of course I wanted to fire her because it's hard to articulate what you don't know, but she got me to see how confusing it is to work someplace where you don't fully understand. So she's helped me with my language, with my clarity. As a result, it's been a huge transformation. And, you know, I've actually been on a kick lately where I've been calling people that used to work for me and I'll say, hey, do you have a minute? I've learned a lot. And every now and then I just think back on this 
thing that happened between me and you. And that was not my best. And I just wanted to call and tell you that. And it's been very rewarding to kind of own that. But it's hard when you're first starting a company and you're trying to figure out how to negotiate a commercial real estate lease like that you know, and you're trying to figure out your accounting and finance and you're trying to figure out your sales team and you're trying to hire people. And it's hard to be good at all things. But as certain things got in place, the final thing for me to take a look at was who was I as a leader? I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I have learned a lot, grown a lot, and really improved in the last three years. So is there like number one thing that you think that's helped you like keep people that maybe we could learn from as far as with your business coach here? I brought the business coach in to work on practice values. So, you know, most companies, you go on their website and you can see a mission statement and you can see a vision statement. But how do you practice that? How do you know what that is? And so we did a full day as a team. We brainstormed all these ways that you can demonstrate this particular core value, and we called them practice values. And we took weeks to prioritize those and distill them down into like 20. And then we took our employee review process and we do survey our colleagues, but we started to survey on those practice values. So what's so really cool about that is if we're saying culture matters, then we're actually rewarding people and acknowledging people and giving them feedback by how they practice. So for example, one of our practice values is saying please and thank you. One is asking for people's time instead of just barging in and going, hey, I need this right now saying, hey, do you have five minutes? One of our practice values is listening to all ideas. One is providing feedback to improve the process. I think there are 19 or 20 and we live by them. We discuss them in employee reviews. When you do that, the culture just sort of takes care of itself and it's very different. That was really helpful for me because we had missed that fundamental step. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and you're just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check in once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like say, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> and again, it goes with you reaching out to understand that and you willing to do that self-improvement. Because if you're not willing to do that, then it's not going to happen, right? So anyone who has their own business, just be honest with yourself. It's like when you said you had to eventually look in the mirror. It's like, sometimes I don't want to look in the mirror because yeah. I'm like, I'm scared when I'm going to look. <laughs> Did I do my hair right today? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's understandable. It's like, once you start racking all these things up, it's like, you're just trying to worry about making money at first, right? But right. then you have to do all this other stuff. You're like, what the hell? I didn't sign yeah, up to yeah. want to. I mean, of course, I think everyone wants good culture and all that stuff, but it seems like you want to make sure you're making enough money first before you even get into all this. And then once you get on that, it's another thing. Yeah. It's a lot of stress in the early days because you need to pay people, but you got to make money and so many decisions. It's fun. I mean, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, that was so much fun, but it's a lot of stress. How do you think you've dealt with that over time and improved in dealing with that? Because again, a lot of us can get stressed out with making ends meet, especially in the beginning or, you know, through other situations, whether it's personal, while you're still running your own business, it's not like you get to take a vacation for a month and let it just keep running. Unfortunately, I think the way I dealt with it in the beginning is I just poured myself into work. I thought it was a badge of honor to be the first one in the office, the last one to go home, to respond to an email at 10, 15 at night, just to show that I was on it, to show up on Saturday, just to get ahead for the next week. And obviously that sent some sort of a weird message to anybody that worked for me. You know, <laughs> I mean, burnout was like, eh. it's interesting. And through my business coach to learn that I can work smart and there's no badge of honor to responding to an email at 10, 15 at night, even to your clients, you know, I mean, how busy are you if you can respond to an email within five seconds? So to really prioritize and be fully present and work at the highest level, but also be okay to let go and let other people make decisions or to let go and take some time off. You know, this past year, my father was in hospice for one year and he actually passed away on April 10th. So that one of the gifts of that experience is learning what really matters in life and 
making priorities to go to Oklahoma, to spend a week there each month, to letting my team handle things, sometimes a different way than I would have, but how are they ever going to learn if I don't let them? And modeling for them that I do understand family, I do understand priorities, and I'm back now and I'm fully engaged, but when one of them have that same situation, I'll be able to be much more compassionate and work with them and share with them and help them navigate those tugs, whether it's small children, aging parents, or just a big life adjustment. Well, I mean, looking back as we're kind of nearing the end of your story here, I mean, what's been the best part about making your whole business? I think the absolute pride in having an idea and seeing what it's done. I mentioned Julie, who's been with me for 13 years. She has a daughter who's an attorney. She has a son who has a master's degree. And I mean, her husband is a great provider, but I know that also the company GDA Speakers played a role in her being able to educate her children to that degree. So that's cool how far reaching it is. I also sometimes think about all the people in the audiences every day all over the globe where we have speakers show up and how many of them walk away with an insight, an idea, new knowledge, inspiration to change their lives. So despite some of the challenges along the way, it's a feel good business. And I have met some incredible people. It's a very rewarding thing. And it all started with one idea and it's become this. And I love that because I know that a lot of businesses don't make it and an even smaller percentage of female businesses make it female owned. Right. Well, what's been the biggest venue that you've booked for one of your people? I think, oh, what is it called? It's in San Francisco. It's a convention center. I can't think of the first name of it right now. Probably about like 25,000 or 26,000. You know, I think that's probably one of the bigger ones. Okay. Well, cool. Well, now hopefully, like I said, this podcast reaches just about that amount or maybe a little bit more. So hopefully your story's gotten out to maybe you've booked yourself as the biggest venue, if you will, <laughs> as this podcast. That. If you I think about that. it like that. I love it. Yeah. Was there any other words of wisdom for anyone who's listening right now, as far as like along your story, kind of figuring out what worked and what didn't? They could be starting off or they could be at the same point in your life when you decided, hey, you know, you're about to turn 40. Why don't I just start a new company? I can still do it. I think to be open, you know, I think there's a common thread there. You know, I was open to the idea that I could find Nando Parado. I was open to the idea that I could reinvent myself after 20 years in corporate America. When I realized that I was the root of the turnover issue at my company, I was open to the idea that I could go to a coach and I could get better. Earlier this year, I lost 50 pounds and I was open to the idea that, okay, I could learn a new way of eating and I could lose the weight. And I think just that openness, it just makes the future so exciting because there's so many possibilities when your starting point is being open. Thank you for being open with us on this interview. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Our website is gdaspeakers.com and I am Gail, G-A-I-L at gdaspeakers.com. Well, thank you for joining us, Gail. Thank you. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with two girls in a cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-6-9. And as long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.